Okay, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look at the 24 elders this morning. Spiritual worship is not only one of the greatest activities that we should be doing in our individual Christian lives, but it is also one of the greatest activities that we should be involved in in our church lives as well. The word worship, as you see up here, means to ascribe worth. It's a matter of using all that we are and all that we have in order to praise God for all that he is and all that he has done. Heaven is a place of what? worship. Heaven is a place of worship. And we saw this in our lesson last week as we beheld through the eyes of the Apostle John the worship of four living creatures who stand day and night before the throne of God praising him. Now again we're going to learn how worship plays such a vital role in heaven as we look in this lesson this morning at a second group of beings before the throne of God. And this group is identified as the 24 elders. And we're going to see how they also worship and praise their creator as we look at verses 10 and 11. And we're also going to see a great deal of worshiping taking place when we move next time into chapter 5. And we will see in verse 13... All creatures everywhere, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, everywhere. Creatures, all creatures who have ever been created, we will see them break into glorious praise to the one who alone is worthy in all of the universe to receive creation's praise. Now, since worship, then, is to play such an important part in our eternal existence in heaven, don't you think that it would seem wise and good for us to get into practice now on how to worship God? We need to spend, I don't think there's anybody who could be excluded in this, we need to spend more time both in our individual lives and in our corporate church lives praising and thanking and honoring the one who is both our creator and our redeemer. In these two prologue chapters, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, we note that God is praised first in chapter 4 for being creator. And then in chapter 5, he is praised secondly for being redeemer. Why do you suppose this is? Creator first and then redeemer. It's because only the eternal creator God can redeem his own creation. So before God pours out his wrath upon planet earth in the period of time known as the seven years of the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week, he gives us a glorious glimpse into the eternal throne room of heaven and he allows us the great privilege to witness through the eyes of the apostle John, not only the royal one on the throne and who is that? God himself or at least in verses uh, 2 and 3 we saw the light emanating from God described for us. And then he allowed us the privilege to look at that emerald rainbow that went round about the throne. That was a reminder that God keeps his promises, that he preserves his own, and that he remembers mercy in the midst of wrath. We were also privileged to see the rumblings coming from the throne. And those were the forewarning sounds of coming judgment. And we saw the resplendence before the throne as we looked at those seven lamps of fire, which symbolized the Holy Spirit. And as we also took a look at the mysterious sea of glass underneath the throne. 
Then God also permitted us to hear the worshiping through the ears of John as we listened to the throng around the throne praising the great creator God. We looked at one group of this throng. We didn't get to both groups, but the first group we looked at was the group that consisted of these four living creatures. And they represented the elect of God's angelic creatures. In other words, the unfallen, holy angels. Now, in today's lesson entitled The 24 Elders, we are going to look at the other group of the heavenly throng, which praises the occupant of heaven's throne, God himself. And they, I believe at least, represent the elect of God's human creation. We saw the four living creatures. They represent the elect angels. These that we're going to be looking at this morning, that's not our title. That's last week's title. Today's title is the 24 elders. These 24 elders, I do believe, represent God's elect human beings. And we'll discuss that. Now, as we take a look at this second group of beings who joined with the four living creatures in praising the Lord upon his throne, we're going to consider two things about them. First of all, we're going to attempt to, at least the best of our ability, to identify their persons, to determine who they are, who they represent. And this is something I cannot be dogmatic about, but I'm going to do the best that we can to discover or try to discover who they are. Then we are going to, secondly, consider their praise, which John recorded for our benefit in verse 11. But before we get into our analysis of the scripture, in our attempt to determine who these 24 elders represent, whether they're angels or whether they're men, and if they are men, to try to determine whether they represent Israel or whether they represent the church or whether they represent the patriarchs of Israel, or whether they represent the church and Israel combined. That's what we'll be looking at. But before we do that, I want to share with you another pre-tribulation rapture support. Remember two weeks ago we looked at all the reasons why I believe the scripture teaches and supports a pre-tribulation rapture. In other words, that the rapture of the church, the catching away of the church saints, will occur before the seven years of tribulation. And this support that we're going to look at this morning is really an analogy between the Lord's promise to his apostles in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, and the Jewish marriage customs in Bible times. Now, you're going to think, for a while at least, you're going to think that this is taking us a bit off course from our current text here in chapter 4. But at the end, after I finish this analogy, I want to explain how this analogy may also help us in our attempt to discover the identity of the 24 elders. So that's where we're going. All right, before we even get into our outline, I'm going to give you this analogy. The first step in a Jewish marriage of Bible times was the betrothal. This was when the marriage covenant was actually established. And it was the prospective bridegroom who took the initiative in this matter. That's the way it should be. should be the man, right, <laughs> who takes the initiative. I did it backwards. I proposed to my husband on the day I met him. That's, that's the wrong way to do it. It worked. <laughs> so anyway, the bridegroom would go to his father's house 
uh, from his father's house, excuse me, to the home of his prospective bride, where he would then proceed to negotiate with the father in order to uh, come to an agreement about the price that he would pay in order to get her. And this price is called a mohar, M-O-H-A-R. I like that idea, don't you, of the prospective bridegroom going to negotiate with the father. That's the way it should be. I've told my children, I said, don't you ever call me up and tell me you're engaged. I've got to meet the, the, the boy first. Well, with my son, it's a little different, but at least with the girls. The boy's got to come to us and get our permission first. And he'll never get that until they're 35, so. <laughs> True. Anyway, so they would negotiate, of course, only if the father consented to the young man being acceptable as a husband for his daughter. Then once the bridegroom and the bride's father came to an agreement and the bridegroom paid the purchase price or the mohar for his bride, then the marriage covenant was established. From that point forward, the two were then considered literally to be husband and wife. The bride was declared to be consecrated or set apart. She was sanctified exclusively for her bridegroom. And to symbolize the covenant relationship between the man and the woman, uh, they would drink together from a cup of wine over which then a benediction would be recited. So they were considered from that point on, not just engaged like we call it, but they were considered married, except that their marriage was not consummated. When the covenant was established, the bridegroom would leave the bride's home. And he would return to his father's house. And there he would remain separated from the bride for generally about a year. And this gave the the bride time to gather up her trousseau. Is that how you say it? Trousseau? To gather all the things that she would need for married life. And it would also give the prospective bridegroom time to go to his father's house and prepare a dwelling place where they would live together when he went to get his bride. The groom's father would be the one who would tell his son when the time of separation was over. The bride and the the bridegroom did not see each other for that whole period of separation, and they didn't have telephones either. So they just didn't communicate with one another in that time of separation. But it was the groom's father who would tell his son, we look over the preparations and say, okay, the dwelling place is ready. You can go and fetch your bride. The groom would usually come at night to get his bride in order to take her to live with him. He would leave his father's house accompanied by his best man and also by other escorts, male escorts, and in a torchlight procession, they would go to the house of the bride. Even though the bride was expecting her betrothed to come for her, she never knew exactly when he would come. So consequently, she was always in a state of readiness. She always had her bag packed. But she never knew exactly when he was coming. Therefore, the groom's arrival as he and his fellow friends are marching down the streets to her house, his arrival was always preceded by a shout. And when the bride heard the shout, she had a little bit of time. She knew that he was on his way to get her. Now, after the groom took his bride and her female attendants, 
her bridesmaids, we would call them. The wedding party, the complete wedding party, would then return to the groom's father's house where the wedding guests, in the meantime, had assembled. Then soon after this wedding party arrived, the bride and the groom were escorted by the other members of the wedding party into the bridal chamber, which was called the hoopah, H-U-P-P-A-H. And before going into this bridal chamber, I forgot to tell you, before they went into it, the bride remained veiled so that no one could see her face. And then with the groomsmen and the bridesmaids outside the hoopah, the bridal chamber, the bride and the groom would enter into this chamber alone, and there in privacy they would consummate their marriage, that the marriage that had been covenanted one year approximately earlier. Well, after the marriage was consummated, the groom came out of this bridal chamber, the hoopah, to announce to the waiting wedding party, you know, the bridesmen and the grooms, the grooms, I mean the, the groom's men, that the marriage was completed. And as he then went back into the bridal chamber with to be with his bride, the members of that wedding party would return to the other guests, and likewise they would announce the completion of the marriage. And this good news was then celebrated by all in a great wedding feast. Now, during the seven days of the wedding feast, the bride and the groom, now listen to this, because this is the important part, the bride and the groom would remain hidden in the bridal chamber, in the chuppah. Afterwards, after these seven days were over, the bride would come out of hiding and bring his wife, his new wife, his bride, with him. This time... Her veil was removed so that everyone could behold her great beauty, see who she was. Now, this scenario was the common manner in which Jews conducted their marriages at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the Lord himself who drew the analogy between these Jewish marriage customs that we've just talked about and his own coming to receive his bride. And who, of course, is his bride? The church. In a beautiful promise of his return for his own, if you want to turn to John chapter 14, he gave encouragement and hope to his faithful 11 disciples on the very night of his arrest. Now, I say 11 because by this time, Judas was gone. Now, these disciples, these 11 disciples, were very heavy in heart, if you remember, the night before the Lord, or the night of his arrest, how heavy they were in their hearts, because he had just told them some very distressing news. First of all, he had told them that one of them would betray him. Then he had said that one of them would deny him three times. And he also shared with them that, in fact, all of them would scatter from him. And then he told them the worst news of all, that he was going away and that where he was going, they could not follow him. But then he said these very, very comforting words. This is true comfort for troubled hearts. We have a little mini album called True Comfort for Troubled Hearts, and it's on this chapter. John chapter 14 is the most comforting chapter in all of the Bible. The Lord said this to his very distressed men in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. 
If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to do what? To prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, before we get into the analogy between the Jewish marriage customs and the Lord's promise of his return, which is here, what we just read, this is a reference to his return for his church in the rapture. This is not the second coming. This is a return, the return in the rapture. But before we get into that analogy, let's remember that the New Testament definitely, definitely does draw an analogy between human marriage and the Lord's own relationship to his church. So this is not an unbiblical analogy. This is not something that Catherine is just making up. This is biblical. The church is portrayed as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33 make it very clear that the relationship between a husband and his wife is to be after the pattern of Christ and his bride, the church. And then in Romans 7, 4, Paul, the Apostle Paul, talked about the spiritual marriage of the church to Christ. While in 2 Corinthians eleven two, he stated that the Corinthian Christians were espoused. In other words, they were betrothed to one husband, to Christ. And he also, in that very same passage, expressed his deep concern that they should keep themselves spiritually pure during the time of their separation from Christ so that they could be presented to him as a chaste virgin when he came for his bride. And along this same line, James stated that the Christian that Christians who prostitute their spiritual purity through friendship with the world are guilty of spiritual adultery. That's in James 4.4. 4. So there is, you see, and there's other passages as well, but the, there is a valid analogy between human marriage and Christ's relationship to his church, and also between human marriage and Christ's future coming as bridegroom to receive his bride, the church. So let's turn now to look at the Lord's 14, 2 and 3 promise to come for his church in light of what we have just learned about the Jewish marriage customs. I think for many of you, it's already pretty obvious, the analogy. Just as the Jewish bridegroom took the initiative in marriage by leaving his father's house and traveling to the house of his prospective bride, so did the Lord Jesus Christ leave his father's house in heaven in order to come to earth, the home of of his prospective bride, the church. As the Jewish bridegroom came to the bride's home in order to obtain her by the way of the establishment of a marriage covenant, so also did the Lord Jesus come to earth to obtain his church by way of the establishment of a covenant. In fact, on the very night that he made that John chapter 14 promise, he instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which we also call what? communion. As he passed the communion cup to his men, and by this time Judas was not there. He had left. So communion, the Lord's Supper, is only for believers. When the Lord passed the communion cup to his men, what did he say? He said, this cup is the New Testament or the new covenant in my blood. By shedding his sinless, precious blood the very next day, which he did on Calvary's cross, the Lord was establishing a new covenant through which he obtained his bride, 
his church. So that was his purchase price. That was the molchar by which he established his marriage covenant and obtained his bride. The price he paid, of course, was the greatest price of all because it was his own shed blood. And he also gave his life, his own life. And this is why Paul could say to the members of the church, Know ye not that ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your own body and in your spirit, which are God's. The church does not belong to herself. She belongs to her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. And then just as the Jewish bride was considered and declared sanctified or set apart exclusively for her groom, once the marriage covenant was established, so too the church of Jesus Christ has been declared sanctified and set apart exclusively for him. And this is why she is not to commit spiritual adultery with the world. This is why the doctrine of separation is so extremely important. But sadly, it is one which is so often, so frequently neglected in Christian circles today. The doctrine of separation, very, very important. In the same way in which the Jewish groom and his bride then drank, we've already talked about this, they drank a cup of wine as a symbol of the marriage covenant, which was uniting them as betrothed husband and wife. So the Lord Jesus Christ gave the cup of communion to his church, to drink as as a reminder, a reminding symbol of the covenant which united him with them, he and his church, spiritually, as husband and wife. Then the next thing that occurred in the Jewish marriage custom was that the bridegroom left the home of his bride. Remember, after the covenant was established, he left the home and he returned to his father's house. And that's precisely what the Lord Jesus did shortly after establishing the marriage covenant with his apostles. He was crucified the next day, and soon after that, he returned to his father's house in heaven. As the Jewish groom then remained separated from his bride in his father's house for an unknown period of time, so the Lord Jesus has remained separated from his church for now around 2,000 years. So the church, you see, is currently living in the period of separation between the time of his departure and the time of his promised return. That's where we are today, is in the period of separation. Then also running parallel to the Jewish marriage custom of the Jewish groom preparing a dwelling place. You can see little dwelling places all over in this picture of heaven. Preparing a dwelling place for his bride in his father's house. During his time of separation from her, we have the the Lord's promise of John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, that this is exactly, precisely what he has been doing, one of his jobs. He's doing a lot of jobs. He's not just building. He's not just being a carpenter. He's got other jobs, like holding the whole universe together. But one of his jobs is preparing dwelling places for each one of us during this time of our separation from him. And then in the same manner in which the Jewish groom came to take his bride when his father told him all was ready and he could go and he came to take his bride to live with him at the end of that period of separation so too Christ will receive the word from God the Father that it's time for him to come and take the church to be with him at the end of this present time of separation 
and uh, then he will and he will come just like the Jewish groom was escorted by his best man and by male escorts the the lord jesus will also be escorted he, there will be a procession of angelic hosts coming with him well at least one archangel we know because one archangel gives the shout there will probably be other angels coming with him and also we know that the souls of the deceased church saints will be with him as well when he leaves his father's house in heaven in order to come and fetch the church from the earth And as we mentioned, the Jewish bride knew that her bridegroom was coming for her. She knew that, but she never knew exactly what time he would be coming. And neither, of course, does the church know when Christ will come for her. It's an imminent event which could occur at any one moment in time. So what's the result of that? The church needs to constantly be ready, warned over and over again throughout the the Gospels and the Epistles, that we need to be ready because we never know at what time he might come. We're always to be pure, keeping ourselves pure. So too, as the bridegroom's arrival was preceded by a shout, so the Lord's arrival to take his church will be preceded by a shout, the shout of the archangel, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Then as the Jewish bride returned with the bridegroom to his father's house after her departure from her own home, So will the church return with Christ to his father's home in heaven after she is caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall she ever be with the Lord in heaven. But the analogy continues. In the same way that the Jewish wedding party was then met by wedding guests who had assembled themselves together in the groom's father's house, so shall Christ and his church when they get to heaven, find the souls of the Old Testament saints assembled in his Father's house in heaven when they arrive. Now, these Old Testament saints will not have received their resurrected bodies yet, but their souls will be there because they don't receive their resurrected bodies until the end of the tribulation period. Now, these Old Testament saints will serve then as the happy wedding guests for the Lord and for his church, his bride. Then, just as the Jewish bride and groom remained hidden for a period of how many days in the chuppah? Seven days after they arrived at the groom's father's house, so the Lord Jesus and his church will remain hidden for a period of seven years after they arrive in heaven. They will be hidden from the earth while the seven years of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, the tribulation period, are taking place here on earth. Furthermore, in the same manner as the Jewish bride and groom then came out of hiding after seven days, so... And, of course, at that point in time, remember, the veil of the bride was removed so um, that everybody there could see her and behold her beauty. So also will the, will the Lord Jesus Christ come out of, the, out of heaven, bringing his bride with him, and it will be for all to behold her great beauty, finally see the beauty of his true church, see who she really is. Not the false church that would be, you know, take, that was in existence during the tribulation. And also they will see who the true bridegroom is, the true king of kings. So that's a beautiful, beautiful analogy. 
Why have I presented this marriage analogy? Well, I did it in order to show you that the view which teaches the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, you know, again, uh, that the church will be raptured before the seven years of the tribulation, that this pre-tribulation view is the only view which corresponds or parallels the analogy between the Jewish marriage customs of Bible times and the promise of Christ himself regarding his coming for his church that we looked at in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. You see, the Lord can only remain hidden with his bride for seven years if she is with him in his father's house, hidden from the earth for that entire seven-year period. A mid-tribulation rapture view or a pre-wrath rapture view would only have her hidden with Christ in the chuppah for a period of three and a half years or less. And a post-tribulation view would not have her hidden with Christ at all, because that view teaches that after Christ is, uh, after he is, after the church is raptured to meet Christ in the air, they go to heaven, but then they come right back down in the second coming. So again, this is just one more support that I wanted to tack on. It was a little too lengthy to give to you a couple weeks ago when we gave all the other ones. But I think because the Lord himself draws the analogy between the marriage customs and his own return for the bride that we are not off the track when we say that the pre-tribulation view would be the only one that that would consistently keep that analogy. You see? So it's a beautiful thing to behold. So what then, we might ask, has all of this got to do with the 24 elders of Revelation chapter 4, who um, are mentioned again, by the way, in chapter 11, verse 16, and also chapter 19, verse 4. So we see them more than once, these 24 elders. Well, the marriage analogy is just, as I said, one further support that the church will not be on earth during the tribulation period. Where then will the church be? She'll be in heaven, right? With her bridegroom. And that, and that fact makes it very possible then that these 24 elders may represent the church. Now again, I cannot be dogmatic about this because the scripture does not give us a specific statement concerning their identity as it does with some things. But it does not come right out and say the 24 elders represent blah, blah, blah. That would have made it easy for me. But so we can't be dogmatic. Although there is some help which is given to us by way of the description of these 24 elders and by the words that they speak. So let's consider now the various views. I hope I don't lose you. Some of this gets a little technical. But let's look at the different views as to the identity of these 24 elders and try to determine as best as we can which one seems most biblically plausible. Okay? You with me? All right, so we're going to look at the first part of our outline underneath the 24 elders, which is called their persons. Okay? So for this, let's look at verses 4 and 10. Revelation 4, verse 4, John says, This is after he described the one sitting on the throne as looking like a jasper and a sardius stone. And then he talked about the rainbow around the throne. Then he says in verse 4, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now go down, if you would, to verse 10. Let me read 10 and 11. I might as well. 
It says in verse 10, the four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, there are a number of godly Christian men and women, a lot of godly Christian Bible teachers, pastors, uh, Bible expositors, you know, those who write commentaries, who do believe that the 24 elders that I just read about here are another group of God's angels, elect angels, just as the four living creatures were. In fact, Dr. John Walvoord, um, who is probably the the most renowned authority on prophecy in the world today, living today. Wonderful, godly man. He's in his 80s, and uh, he knows the scripture like nobody I've ever seen. Incredible, right, Bonnie? Incredible man. Anyway, um, he says that this is probably the most popular view among New Testament scholars today, is that these 24 elders are angels, although he himself does not agree with that view, and he goes along with the traditional interpretation which favors them as being representatives of the church. Now, what are the arguments then, since this is the most popular view, that these 24 elders are angels? What are some of their arguments for saying this? Well, the main one comes from Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. So look over at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. This is a The 24 elders are singing a new song, okay? They say that these two verses have not been interpreted correctly to read, and here's what I'll show you they read in the King James Version. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. See that word us? The 24 elders are singing, hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Now the ones who say that the 24 elders are angels say that these verses have not been interpreted correctly, that the oldest manuscripts say that this is how they should be read. Okay, now I'm going to read what they say should be read how it should be read. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed men to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made them unto our God kings and priests and they shall reign on the earth. So their argument is that these 24 elders are angels and that they are singing here not about themselves, but that they are singing about men and that, you know, men have been redeemed. However, this argument is not conclusive evidence. For one thing, you know, we can't prove that their oldest manuscripts are the correct manuscripts. And for another thing, whether the elders are angels or men, all right? Whether they're elders or men, I mean angels or men, they could still refer to men as men. Right? If I'm a man, I could refer to men as men. Okay, so it's not conclusive evidence. Another reason for claiming that the 24 elders are angels that they give is the claim that the angels are wearing white clothing. 
and that the highest order of angels, according to Colossians 1.16, is thrones. And that's true. The highest order of angels is called thrones. However, this is a very weak argument. Both of these are weak arguments because the redeemed saints of the Lord, the church, also wear white raiment. And the four and twenty elders are never stated to be of the angelic order of thrones. It's only stated that they sit upon thrones. If you look at your text, they sit on thrones. You know, God also sits upon a throne, but that does not make him a member of the angelic rank of thrones. So those arguments are weak. Proponents of this view also say, now if you want to flip over to John 7, 14, they say that because the Apostle John responded to one of these elders in this chapter, John chapter 7, verse 14, one of the elders speaks to him, and John answers this elder by calling him sir. See verse 14? It says, and I said unto him, sir. Okay, so they say that this indicates... 714? No. Revelation 714. Oh, John, I'm sorry. I was thinking about John. I'm sorry. Revelation 7.14. Thank you. Revelation 7.14. The elder speaks to John, and John answers him by calling him sir. All right? They say that this indicates that this elder, he's one of the 24 elders, that this indicates that he is an angel. But once again, this cannot really be used as conclusive evidence. We have to remember that John was still a mortal, wasn't he? He had not yet died, and he was just given, being given, you know, temporarily this wonderful privilege of beholding heaven's throne room. So you can imagine if you could put yourself in his shoes, any creature that he would meet up there in heaven, whether, whether it was an angelic creature or a glorified human, any creature would receive his awe and his respect. I know that if I was caught up into heaven and anybody up there spoke to me, I'd say, yes, sir, (laughs) wouldn't you? So this is not real solid evidence either. Now, let me give you some of the reasons for why I do not believe that the four and 20 elders are angels. For one thing, although there are such ranks as thrones and principalities and powers and dominions among the angels... Those are some of the ranks of the angels. There is a hierarchy, apparently, of angels, you know, with archangels at the top and then thrones and and dominions, principalities, and powers. I'm not making it up. It's in the scripture. You can look up Colossians 1.16, Ephesians 6.12. But there is no such angelic rank called elders. None. The word elders in the Greek is the word presbyteros. And what word do you think we get from that? Presbyters, or, and that's, of course, the Presbyterian denomination came from that word, presbyters. The term elder in the Bible is always, always used to refer to men. Everywhere else in the scripture, it is a reference to men. Also, think about this. All angels were created on the same day. So there are no elders among them. You know, they don't have an age. They're all, if you could say they're this age, they're all the same age. 
None are older than the other. None were created before the others, chronologically speaking. The word elder, presbyteros, is a term which speaks of chosen representatives and leaders of the people, both in Israel and in the church, who are generally older in age. And if not older in age, at least older chronologically speaking. Like we would look back on the, you know, the patriarchs of the, the faith. We could call them elders because chronologically they came before us. Furthermore, now here is a strong evidence, okay? Both Ezekiel and Isaiah were privileged, just like John, to receive visions of heaven. Both of these men saw the four living creatures. Both of them saw seraphim, or maybe Ezekiel was seeing the cherubim. But either way, they both saw those strange creatures. But neither one of them said a word about seeing any elders. And that would be very, very strange if the elders were angels. And yet there is no mention of the elders as angels in all of the Old Testament. However, if the elders are men, whether they're men who represent Israel or if they're men who represent the church or both or whatever, if they were men, it would make perfect sense that neither Isaiah nor Ezekiel saw them. Why? Well, because before the cross, the spirits of all of the redeemed saints of Israel didn't go to heaven, did they? Where did they go? They went to the paradise section of Hades. So Ezekiel and Isaiah, when they saw heaven, they did not see any elders because all the redeemed saints, if that's who the elders represent, would have been in the paradise section of Hades. Furthermore, they wouldn't have seen elders of the church if that's who they represent because that church didn't even exist at that time. The church didn't come into existence until after the cross. So you see, the fact that they didn't see the elders makes perfect sense if the elders are men. It doesn't make sense if the elders are angels. Now, there are three important facts that we learn about the 24 elders from Revelation 4.4. And all three of these facts correspond to promises that Christ himself gave to the overcomers of the seven churches. In other words, to the church saints. First of all, we find that the 24 elders are seated on thrones. The Greek word for seats that you see in verse 4 is the word thronos. And that is the same, the identical word translated as thrones everywhere else throughout the book of Revelation. So you could really say the seats are the thrones. It's the exact same word. Why they said seats instead of thrones there, I don't know. In Revelation 3.21, the Lord promised the overcomers that they would sit with him on his what? On his throne. Secondly, we find that these 24 elders are clothed in white raiment. And in Revelation 3.5, the Lord Jesus promised the overcomers of the church that they would be clothed in white raiment. And furthermore, the elders are wearing crowns of gold upon their head. And Christ promised crowns to the overcomers of the church age in both Revelation 2.10 and 3.11. And we also find other promises in the rest of the New Testament about the crowns, which are promised to church saints. Now, there are two words, two Greek words for crown. We have one, they've got two. I mean, the Greeks make everything complicated, right? I inherited all this, honestly. 
to make everything complicated for you. You probably say, who cares who the 24 elders are? <laughs> I don't know why I do, but I do. All right, there are two Greek words for crown. The first one is diadem. That's what you would say, diadem. And that's the crown of a ruler or a sovereign. In other words, it's the crown of governmental authority. The other word is stephanos, and that's the crown of a victor. That was the crown that was given to the athletic um, the ones who won the, the athletic events in the Greek Olympic races and the other events that they would have. It was usually a crown made out of leaves. That was the Stephanos. Now, the, the word used here for what the 24 elders have on their head is the word Stephanos. In other words, they're wearing crowns of victors rather than crowns of governmental authority. And because these crowns are made out of gold, it speaks of victory accomplished. Now, let me tell you something. Angels have had no victory accomplished. They are not overcomers. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? But they are not overcomers because they have, these are the elect angels, and they have never had any sin. And they are immortal, so they have had no death to overcome. So they don't need an overcomer's crown. They have never overcome sin and death. Angels are ministering spirits. We are told this in Hebrews 1.14. And they are not ever, ever described in the Bible as wearing crowns of any kind. Also... There is a significant difference between, remember how we start out this lesson talking about worship? Let's look at the worship, the difference in the worship of the four living creatures who we know are angelic and the worship of the four and twenty elders. In Revelation 4, verses 8 and 9, I've got to go back there. All right, verses 8 and 9, the four living creatures... Worship God for his attributes. Remember, they worship his holiness when they say holy, holy, holy. They worship his eternality when they call him the one which was and is and is to come. They worship his all-sufficiency when they call him Lord God, God Almighty. Because what does the word Almighty mean in the Hebrew or what is it? It's the word El Shaddai. El Shaddai means all-sufficient one. So they're worshiping God for who he is, the angelic creatures. However, the 24 elders worship God not only for his attributes, but they worship him for his works which reveal his attributes. They worship him, look at verse 11, because he created all things. Further, in prostrating themselves, look at verse 10, in prostrating themselves before him, what do they have to do? They first have to come off of their thrones, don't they? In order to fall down before God, they have to come off of their own thrones. They have to descend from their thrones. Then in addition to removing themselves from those thrones, what else do they remove? from their heads. They remove their crowns and they cast them before God's throne. So what are they doing? They are acknowledging that these rewards 
for their faithfulness, the thrones and the crowns, that those rewards truly belong to God. Their faithfulness was only made possible by his faithfulness. You see, they realized that they would have nothing at all had it not been given to them and that they only accomplished what he willed and what he enabled them to accomplish. All is of him and all is from him. And therefore, they understand that their crowns really don't belong to themselves. They belong to him. All glory and honor and power belongs to him. You know, if it hadn't been for his grace and his salvation and his goodness, they would never have been overcomers. They would never have been victorious. They would never have overcome sin and death. So it's interesting to notice also when we think about this, that when the Lord returns to earth, I don't have a picture of that right now, but when he returns in the second coming and his bride, the church is coming with him, it tells us in Revelation 19, 12, that he is wearing upon his head many crowns. I wonder whose crowns they might be. I don't know. Maybe they're the crowns that the 24 elders cast at his feet. Well, in light of all these reasons... For not interpreting the 24 elders as angels, it seems very reasonable to me to not tamper with the King James Version's rendering of Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. So that the 24 elders as men are singing their joyous new song to their Redeemer, and they are saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on earth. So that's my conclusion is that the 24 elders are not angels but they are men. Now who are they? All right, let's say they're men. You all agree? Okay, they're men. But who are they? There's a lot of different views about which men they represent. There is a view that says they are the representatives of the priesthood of Israel. Now, although there were literally thousands of priests during Israel's greatness, and when was Israel the greatest? Under the reign of King David and King Solomon. There were thousands of priests. But those priests couldn't all minister in the temple at the same time. Therefore, those thousands of priests were taken and they were divided into 24 orders, 24 groups, each of which was represented by a single priest. And when those 24 priests met together, they represented the entire priesthood of Israel. So that's why some people say that these 24 elders represent the priesthood of Israel. Now, I see several problems with this interpretation. Sounds good on the surface, doesn't it? But let's look at it. What's one problem? Well, for one thing, the Old Testament saints, this is Israel, priesthood of Israel, Old Testament saints are not resurrected until after the seven years of tribulation. And it will not be until that time that they receive their rewards. Okay? Secondly, look at Revelation 5, 9 again. The elders say that God has redeemed them out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The 24 representative priests 
of Israel were all Jewish, and they all came out of one nation, which of course was Israel. So they don't qualify for this statement. If these 24 elders are men, they cannot represent the priesthood of Israel. There's another view concerning the 24 elders, which states that they are the 24 patriarchs, which are listed in the book of Genesis, in the line of the promised seed. And they start off and they count from Adam. They go Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem. And then they go all the way down to Judah and Pharaoh, and they count 24 patriarchs. However, what do you think the problem with this might be? Same problem we just had with them being Israel. They're Old Testament saints, and they will not be bodily resurrected and rewarded until after the tribulation period. And what we have in this scene before us is a prologue to the tribulation period. And furthermore, they did not, these 24 patriarchs did not come out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Rather, all kindreds, tongues, peoples, and nations came out of them. So it doesn't work. There's another view which states that the 24, I had fun this week. I'll tell you, I had a lot of fun doing all this. And I really got to the point where I wondered who in the world these guys were. Because just about everybody was eliminated. But I'll get to where I'm going. You'll find out. Now, there's another view which states that the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This is probably the second most popular view other than them being angels. The second most popular view is that they represent the 12 uh, tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. How many of you have heard that view? Okay, before I studied this, this is probably the view I would have said, yeah, that's it. That makes sense. 12 and 12 is 24, and that sounded good to me. All right, so they say that they represent 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, and therefore that they represent all of the redeemed saints. However, this wouldn't be true for one reason. They do, would not represent all of God's redeemed saints because the saints, the people who will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ during the seven years of the tribulation, they are called tribulation saints. They don't fall under either category. I'm talking about the Gentile people who get saved. They would not fall under the category of Israel and they would not fall under the category of the church. So they would not represent the whole, all of God's redeemed. The main problem, however, with this view is once again that the Old Testament saints, now see if 12 of them represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament saints will not be fully redeemed, they will not be resurrected in their bodies and rewarded for their faithfulness and their works until after the tribulation. So it would be very strange for them to have crowns in heaven before the tribulation as though, you know, they were resurrected and rewarded with the church saints at the judgment seat of Christ. That's when we receive, the church receives her rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, which takes place after the church is raptured. raptured. So that would be strange if they had their rewards right along with the church when they will not be rewarded until after the tribulation. You know, the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema seat, as it's called also, is only for the church. Furthermore, this group is called 24 what? 
24 elders. It is not called 24, well, we'll take half of them anyway. It's not called 12 tribes. It's not called 12 sons of Jacob. Um, It's not called 12 tribes and 12 um, apostles. It's called 24 elders. Now, there were elders in Israel. You can read about them in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1. There were elders in Israel. So you might go, aha, that's got to be the answer. They weren't the priesthood of Israel, but they were the elders of Israel. Now we got it. No, wrong. Because there were, well, again, we had the same argument that they won't be redeemed until after the tribulation. But besides that, there were not 24 elders in Israel. There were 70. And I mean, there weren't 12 either, if you want to take half and half half for the church and half for Israel, there weren't 12 elders in Israel. There were 70. And, you know, when I saw that, I said, boy, that blows that too, 70. And there is no indication of how many elders there were in the early church. You know, if you want to say that 12 of these guys represent the elders of the church, well, there were, we don't know how many elders in the early church. Now, although there were 24 priests in Israel, you know, representing the entire priesthood that you can read about in First Chronicles 24, yet they were not elders. They were priests. Israel specifically had 70 elders. Now, furthermore, I don't believe that 12 of these heavenly elders, so I've just blown, you know, I've blown the case for 12 of them being Israel, representing Israel or the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes, or the elders or the priesthood. I've blown that, all right, in my arguments. Now let's look at the 12 that they say represent the apostles. I don't see how the elders, the 12, 12 of them anyway, could represent the 12 apostles of the church either. Because for one thing, John was one of them, right? So either John would have seen one of those thrones empty (laughs) because, you know, he hadn't died yet. Or else, because he was looking into the future, he would have seen his face on one of those guys as he was looking at them. He would have said, oh, look, there's me. And furthermore, he would have recognized the other 11 fellas. Because they were his dearest of earthly companions. And he, he wouldn't have called one of them who spoke to him in Revelation 7.14, Sir, he would have said, Peter! <laughs> or James, my brother! He would have called them by their known name. Because we will know one another in heaven. And so I think this kind of blows the idea that 12 of these guys were the apostles. Besides that, if you don't go along with me there, we also have the fact. Now, would you look at Matthew 19, 28? We have the fact here that the Lord's 12 apostles, and you may not have ever, this may never have dawned on you before, but those 12 apostles were specifically assigned the task of judging the 12 tribes of Israel on 12 thrones in the millennial kingdom, which is also called the regeneration. Where will the 12 apostles reign? In the kingdom on earth, the millennial kingdom. They will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. They were not promised thrones in heaven. 
Now, so, we're hardly left with anything, are we? The last interpretation is that the 24 elders represent the church, the bride of Christ. This view, as I looked at it, was the only one that was really consistent with a lot of things. It's the only one that's consistent with a pre-tribulation rapture view, which claims that um, that uh, the church is where? In heaven, in the hoopah, not in earth, on earth, during the seven years of the tribulation period. And it also conforms perfectly with the Jewish marriage customs, that, that analogy, which was purposely given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his rapture promise of John chapter 14. And we talked about the fact that the church is not mentioned at all in Revelation chapters 4 to 18, which do deal with the tribulation period. And therefore, it would make complete sense for John to see the church, to see her represented in heaven by 24 elders. It would also be in complete agreement with the Lord's own promise... To church age believers that these elders would be dressed in white raiment and that they would be sitting on thrones and that they would be wearing golden crowns. The judgment seat of Christ, which is the time for rewarding the church, this will take place in heaven after the rapture. And therefore, these elders would have, by this time, received their rewards. You know, so that it makes sense that they'd be on thrones and that they would be wearing golden crowns, whereas the Old Testament saints would not have been rewarded at this time. And angels, as we said, are never, ever seen sitting on thrones or wearing crowns throughout the whole scripture. Furthermore, only the saints of the church age will literally come out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation as it says in Revelation 5.9. So we get down to the last question, the big one. All right, so let's say this: these 24 elders do represent the church. Why then are there 24 in number? I don't know. <laughs> but perhaps... Perhaps it's because the church of Christ is a royal priesthood. The Israelites had a priesthood, but the church is a priesthood. Peter wrote, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal, what? Priesthood, and holy nation, this next one we all know, a peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 The priesthood of Israel was represented by 24 priests. So why then could not the royal priesthood of the church, the church body of saints, why could not the priesthood of the church also be represented by the number 24? I don't know, but it kind of makes sense to me. It's food for thought, let's put it that way. So meditate on that. Let's look last now at their praise. 
Verse 11, they said, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. You know, the theme of this, the hymn, which is sung by the 24 elders in this chapter, is if we titled this hymn, we could call it God the Creator. The theme of the song that they're going to sing in chapter 5, which we've already read a number of times today in verses 9 and 10, we could call that God the Redeemer. In chapter 4, the praise is given to God the Father. He's the one who receives all the praise, the one sitting on the throne. In chapter 5, all the praise is given to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referred to there as the Lamb. And then the closing hymn, we have a lot of songs, a lot of praise, a lot of worship in these two chapters. The closing hymn of these two chapters we find in chapter 5, verse 13. And this song is sung, I told you before, by every creature everywhere in the universe, and it is a praise sung to both the Father and the Son, again proving the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this sequence, you see the sequence we have here of acknowledging and worshiping and praising first God as creator in chapter 4, and then God as redeemer in chapter 5 is very significant. That uh, sequence is significant because acknowledging God as the creator, as your creator, is the first step toward trusting him as your redeemer. But sadly, tragically, sinful man worships and serves the created being, the creature, instead of the creator. You can read all about it in Romans chapter 1. And this is nothing but idolatry. And this is why the sinful man doesn't submit to or know Christ as redeemer. Because he fails to acknowledge him as creator. And it's really, really a very sad commentary on the church today, or much of Christendom, I should say, that it it also, she also, very often fails or neglects to worship God as creator. There are so many in our church circles, so many in Christendom, who seem to think that the doctrine of creationism is of insignificant importance. You know, many even attempt to compromise with atheism to the extent that they try to say that evolution was God's way of creation. That's called theistic evolutionism. There's nothing the- theistic about it, and, there's, and evolutionists deny it as well. It's a compromise. It's a cop-out. But it doesn't work, and it's blasphemy. So no wonder there are so few who seem to find Christ as Redeemer, especially when the churches are mocking God as the Creator and the reality of Genesis chapter 1. However, you know what? This is not what the redeemed saints in heaven say as they worship God. Notice in verse 11 that they specifically say that it was for God's pleasure that all things are and were created. In other words, they are saying that all things are. What does that mean? All things are. All things have their existence. Because of God's pleasure, because of God's creative will. And they also say all things were created. Notice that? 
they are not being created. That's what the evolutionists would tell us, that all things are being created. All things are evolving. But the redeemed church saints, or whoever these people are, don't believe this. And they're right there in front of the throne of God. And they say all things are and all things were created by God's will. So one thing I can tell you for sure today about these 24 elders, whether they're men or angels, whether they're Israel or the church, they are not evolutionists. (laughs) Now it's fascinating to note that the Greek word for pleasure in verse 11 is the word thelema. I don't know if Thelma Birch is here, but this is probably where her name comes from. I don't see her. Thelema. It's a word which is oftentimes translated in the Bible as will. W-I-L-L. The 24 elders, you see, are saying that all things are and were created for God's pleasure in accordance with his will. And this is the very last time that this word thelema appears in the New Testament. But you know what's fascinating? This is the last time it appears in the New Testament. You know when the first time that the word thelema, or will, pleasure, appeared in the New Testament? It was when the Lord was teaching his disciples how to pray in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. And he said to pray, thy will, thelema, be done in earth as it is in heaven. The final answer to that prayer that he taught his church to pray is foreseen by John in Revelation where God's will is about to be done in earth as it was decreed in heaven. So that's interesting. You know, God made all creation good. Remember Genesis 1, how many times he looked at it and he saw that it was good. He made his creation good. But man's sin plunged God's creation into sin. So that today his once good creation is a groaning creation, Romans 8.22. However, because of the Lord's work on the cross, God's creation one day will be delivered, and it will be redeemed, and then it will be a glorious creation. But in the process of bringing that glorious day back to his creation, God has purposed, it's his will, He has purposed to purge and to purify his creation through a harsh, unprecedented series of judgments which will take him seven years to complete. Now why, we ask, why does he have the right and the authority to do that? Why does he have the right to send so much judgment on the earth in these seven years? Well, the answer is because he is the creator. He is the creator God. Earth and all of the creatures on it are his to do with according to his good pleasure and according to his good will. It says in Romans 9, verses 20 to 23, let me read these to you. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? You know, who are you? Who are we to question God? Shall the thing formed... Say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Look, say that, you know, when you look in the mirror. God, why did you make me like this? Who are we to question why he made us the way we are? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? 
You know, he has he has endured. He's been very, very long suffering with many vessels of wrath that are fitted to destruction. Many people he should just send to hell like me before I was saved. But he is long suffering and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory. In other words, what Paul is writing there is, who are we to question the eternal God? Rather, what, we, what should we do instead? We should follow the example of these 24 elders, because I personally believe that is going to be us one day. We should just fall down in submission before him and praise him. Praise him for his wisdom, his power, his love, his grace, his mercy, without which, indeed, every one of us in this room would have perished. All who exist. You know, once upon a time, I was an evolutionist, and there was no meaning to life, and it was sad. And I could give you my testimony, but I was one depressed young lady. All who exist can find their meaning for life and their explanation for existence only in the fact of of special creation by an eternal, transcendent, personal creator God. When you know him, you have meaning for your life and you have hope for your life. You have everything when you know him. So worship him. Let's learn how to worship him with all our heart, mind, strength, and everything that we are.